Well, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn back to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. It's a familiar psalm. We'll kind of work through it with you uh, in our time together. I was, uh, I was up at camp with several of the teens here uh, just a few weeks ago. And um, it was kind of comical to me. We, we have like a mud pit, which is, which is a mud pit. I mean, it's, 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 really, it's really sick. It's fun to watch, but don't like to go in it much. And um, it was kind of funny to me. I, I, was, I, I knew a young man who was dating a young woman, and she was up there, and she had gone in and gotten all dirty. But he, you know, he didn't really know that he wanted to do that. And, and it was, I was just kind of watching him, and there at the end, he had to save face and show that he was a man. And, and he had to show, in for, show off for her. So he really ran down there and just let go, and went back right smack in his back and just totally went submerged in that, that mud pit and came up and he was the guy. And now, and she was standing right there and I, I suppose she was really impressed. And, and I just, I couldn't help but chuckle because I, I just thought, that's such a teen thing, isn't it? You know, the guy trying to show who he really is and, and you know, I, 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 and, and so I really got a laugh out of it and I thought to myself, there's something endemic to humanity where we, we want to be show-offs, don't we? At least for certain people. And I was reminded as I saw him, I saw myself. And yet, when you come to the scriptures, showing off is a wonderful thing as long as we do it for the right person. <laughs> because God is the one that we should be showing off. And, 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 so, and, and when you come to Psalm 8, that's exactly what the text is all about. Showing off God. Like, so the people get done and say, like, whoa. Wow. Do you, do you see? Notice what he says here in Psalm 8. Um, I want to read the first verse and then the ninth verse. And, and because what he does is he sandwiches, he gives you the theme of the psalm by a sandwich effect. He mentions that at the beginning, and he comes to it again at the end. Notice how verse 1 starts. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Or we could say this. How magnificent is your reputation in all of the earth. Same idea. You, and then he goes on to say, you have set your glory above the heavens. But go down to verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name or how, how magnificent is your reputation in all the earth. So whatever he says in between verse 1 and verse 9, he wants you to come out of that experience and say, when I think of God, when I think of his reputation, wow. Do you see? So, why is it that we should go, Wow. When we think of God. He gives us three reasons in the psalm. The first one. Comes right out of verse one. And it's. So we want to show off God's greatness. God shows off his greatness. First of all. By his powerful creative acts. Around us. You have set your glory. Above the heavens. And again he's going to say in verse three. When I look at your heavens. The work of your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. And here's the point. I know we live in a world where to talk about things like creation is not in vogue. You know, if you're, 
if you're in the scholarly scientific community, you don't even want to talk about intelligent design, even though there's a huge movement of intelligent design, even within the scientific community. But you've got to be real careful because it's not the vogue thing to talk about, is it? And here's what's sad to me. God has created everything we see around us so that we would say, wow. And our world comes along in the first century, or not even in the first century prior to that, but Paul talks about it in the first century. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, what people do is, rather than coming and seeing the greatness of this God around them, because if you come to see the greatness of this God, then you say, there's a great God to whom I'm responsible. You have to keep asking one question after another, which is, like, how do I get related to him? And what does it mean to live in such a way that it revolves around him rather than me? And people don't want to go there, do they? And in Romans 1, what you do then is you change the God. And you configure a God in your own image. Somebody who's manageable and manipulative. And you serve him instead. That's what they did in the first century, which is why polytheism was rampant. In our day, we don't want to replace God with another God. We just want to totally neglect him and explain everything away other ways. And the psalmist, when he looks up to the heavens and as he looked at the stars around him, all he could say was, wow. What would he say today if we could give him a telescope? You know? And say, I want you to look up, and I, you know, I'm not a scientific expert, but at least some scientists tell us that there's at least 10 billion galaxies with each galaxy having 100 billion stars. Now, now okay, maybe they're off a couple billion. I don't know. <laughs> but can you imagine if, Psalm 8, if the psalmist would have not only just seen, what, hundreds of stars? All of a sudden you say, no, no, no. Billions upon billions upon... Look at the telescope. Oh, Lord, our Lord. How magnificent is your reputation in all the earth? Because it doesn't matter where anybody is on the earth. They can see it. Look in the telescope. Look in the microscope. They tell me, if you go to a rainforest and dig up just a handful of topsoil that you would come away with two billion different fungi, algae, and protozoa. Now, I never counted any of that. It's a little gross when I think about it, actually. <laughs> but, but do you see the point? A guy wrote a book in the last couple years, and it's, it's really made a splash in the scientific community. It's called The Signature of the Cell by Stephen Meyer. And what he has done is, and you can go on the Discovery Institute, uh, website sometimes to look at it. It's, it's phenomenal. You can go in there and they, they just kind of show you the in intricacies of the cells and what he comes away with at the end of the day, whether you're looking at a telescope and looking at the handiwork of God here or whether you're looking at a microscope and the intricacies of a cell that go far beyond anything I ever learned in high school, you come away saying, there is no way that could just happen. It is impossible there was an intelligent design. There was God behind the entire process. And the writer of Scripture says, why should we magnify his reputation? <laughs> because he's the creator God. You see him everywhere. In the telescope, and the microscope, God is everywhere. Wow. Where else do you see him? Look at what he says here in verse 2. 
This is really interesting to me. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So God shows off his greatness by his powerful creative acts around us. And he shows off his greatness by his design to overpower evil through weaklings like us. Do you see what he says? Here's God's enemies and his foes. People who are against him. Who are you going to bring up to really speak a word to them, God? Uh, babies and infants. Why? Are you kidding me? We've got to get somebody greater than that for goodness sake. No, no, no. No. I, I will take the weak and I will have them speak to the enemies and confound them. Really? Yeah, because God says, when I do that, guess who gets the glory? I do. And if you track through your scriptures, you will find God doing that again and again and again. We all love the David and Goliath story. I mean, you got to think, you gotta, when you think about that, I, I love the story. But here it is, 40 days, Goliath trudges out to the middle of that, that, that valley and says, send me a man. And who incidentally was the giant of Israel that stood head and shoulders above everybody else? Saul. So for 40 days, Saul, the tallest guy, cowered, should have as the king stepped out, right? Didn't. And nobody came forth. David is a grocery boy sent out to the line to give food to his brothers. Has, happens to have a sling with him. You know, whatever. Doesn't know how to wield a sword or anything. And he comes up and says, hey, what's up, guys? Oh, there's this big giant. He's 10 foot. I mean, he's huge. I mean, and all, I mean the guy's 10 feet tall. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. But David says, well, I'll take, I mean, is he calling after God? Yeah, well, no, I'll take him on. <laughs> oh, his brothers say, what are you, insolent? I mean, what, what, what are you now? And the people say, are you, are you serious? You know, and, and, and it's just, it's a fascinating story. And what's interesting in the story of David and Goliath, we always go to the, the battle scene. The bulk of the chapter is discussion back and forth because everybody's like, who's this kid? His brothers can't believe it. The soldiers can't believe it. Saul can't believe it. And Goliath certainly couldn't believe it. So finally this kid comes out before Goliath. And Goliath says, I waited 40 days for this. Come on, man. I'm going to feed you to the birds. And this is what David says. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into, into our hand. David said, I may be all God, all God has, but that's all God needs. Isn't that true? God can take people who don't have it all together, who don't always know what to say. God can turn things around. Zerubbabel is 
back in the land after the exile to build the, 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 the temple. And he's scared and he's confused. Zechariah comes to him and says this in Zechariah 4, 6. Then God said to me, Zechariah says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Folks, that's our God. God doesn't need great people. He can use weak, committed people. You know what that means? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He can use you. Yeah, but Doug, I, I, I can't speak as well. He can use you. Anybody here know um, a fellow by the name of Kimball? Edward Kimball. If you do, it would really surprise me because I couldn't remember his name. And I read on this stuff from time to time. An insignificant man that virtually nobody knows except he was the man that led D.L. Moody to faith in Jesus Christ. Sunday school teacher. But there's no institutions named after him. People just don't know him. And yet God took him, brought D.L. Moody to faith, and God used him in ways that people can't possibly imagine. You, you, you never know. You never know how God uses you. I, I think a lot, for many of us, in glory, we're going to go around and say like, are you kidding me? You mean, I talked to him or her, and then, they, whoa! Yeah. It's the way of God, folks. It's not by might or power. God says it's by my spirit. I work through the most insignificant people. Well, certainly that must change when you come to the New Testament. No, it's the same old theme, isn't it? So Paul writes to the Corinthians. And he says, not many noble, not many rich. Now some, that's true. I mean, God, God saves all kinds. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the mighty. 1 Corinthians 1. Do you see? And, and do you remember the words of Paul over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? It's, 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 it's a marvelous passage. Well, actually it's 4, it's 6. It's a, let, let, me, let me just do chapter 12 for time's sake. Paul says this in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me to keep me from exalting myself. Now, we don't know what that was. If I had a guess, I would probably guess eye problems if I had a guess just because of what he says over in the book of Galatians. But I don't know exactly. And one of the beauties of that is this. It's kind of nice at one level that we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. You know why? Because then it applies to all of our thorns in the flesh, doesn't it? I mean, things in our life where we say, God, if you take this away, I think I could be more effective for you. And as Don Sanukian has often said, the very thing that you want removed from your life may be the very thing you need most in your life. And so Paul comes and he has this figured out and he says, Lord, Three times, I said, Lord, 
deliver me. And, and, and what's fascinating is, whatever he experienced, it was from messenger of Satan. So Satan was behind this thing. And yet, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, folks, I have to tell you, I don't like that. When I'm feeling weak, I want it gone. I, I would just, God, get it away. I don't want to be sick. I don't want this. I don't want that. I, I don't want any of that. Just, I can be more affected, you God, without those things. I mean, don't you feel that way? I mean, you'd be a masochist if you didn't feel that way. But God often in his grace says, you know, I'm trying to do something that you can't possibly imagine. And that very thing you want removed is the very thing I'm going to leave for now because I want to show my power through weakness. Will you let me do that? We sang today about, Lord, I want to be committed totally to you. Even if he wants you to hold on to that weakness. In glory, you'll never regret it. Back in chapter 4, Paul picks up on the exact same theme. And he says, God wants to show forth his glory through earthen vessels. I, I kind of contemporize it like this. God loves to use Skippy peanut butter jars. You know, I'm not a big Skippy guy. But, you know, a Skippy peanut butter jar, normally when you're done with it, what do you do with it? You throw it in the trash. I mean, if I came into your house and looked up on your mantle and you had a Skippy peanut butter jar and you said, oh yeah, that's, that's real special to us, Doug. I'd be a little concerned about you. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean you're like, mm, what's up with this pretty, right? You know what I'm saying? But God says, no, 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 no. I show my glory to Skippy peanut butter jars. Allow me to use you. Yeah, but I, I don't like it. I know. But God wants to show off his greatness. He doesn't just do it in creation around us, folks. He does it by showing his power through us who are weak. And because you know what happens? God changes a life through you as you're going through whatever you're going through. The person can't come away and say, boy, I think is like, you know what they have to say? God is awesome. Do, do you see? Now, I know that's upside down. That's not American. You know, I mean, when celebrities get saved, we parade them up in front of, and you know, allow them to give testimonies, you know. You don't normally bring a weakling up. But God does his best work through weaklings. Now, that's not an excuse for you to be less than what you're supposed to be, okay? You should be everything you can be by God's grace. Okay, fair enough. But folks... That's all God asks. Isn't that wonderful? That means if you know Jesus, you're a forgiven follower of his, God can use you. There's no question about it. And actually, God can do some of his best work through you if you'll let him. The thing you most want God to remove may be the very thing God wants to leave. So God... How do you show forth your glory? Look around. Look at the telescope. Look at the microscope. My handiwork you see shows my greatness. I put all 
of that in place. But also, look at what I do through people who struggle and are weak. That's, that's the other place I show my glory. Okay? Where else? And he gives us a third. Thirdly, God shows off his greatness by his gracious choice to ultimately rule through us. Now let me explain all that because that's, that's a mouthful. But this is where the psalm really camps out. Look at what it says. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the very things that show me your greatness, the psalmist says, David says, what in the world is man? What in the world is humanity? That you are mindful of him. And the son of man, that you care for him. God, if you're that great, why, why do you care about us? Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God, you are this great God and you actually say, you know, I'm going to rule through people. Like, what are we? We are just people. And here's what I thought. We are also image bearers, aren't we? We are to reflect God's glory. And, 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 and the psalmist says, you know what? I see God's greatness when I realize, wow, look what he's done there. Look what he does through weak people. And look at the fact that he actually wants to use us to ultimately rule. Us. Now, question for you. How well is humanity doing with ruling this earth? It's pathetic. It's just, I mean, it's just pathetic. And, and I know... What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And, and people think, you know, you can, we could just kind of generate it on our own and everything will be wonder. But mankind's been trying that a whole kind of bunch of ways for a very long time. And you know what the problem is? This promise that the psalmist gives us, which was the one given to Adam at the beginning, but something happened after it was given to Adam, didn't it? Genesis 3 in the fall. And in the fall, God's intention for humanity was stopped. It couldn't be real. It could not be realized because of the fall. And you start reading Genesis 4 to 50, honestly, if you had to give like a movie rating to it, some of that stuff, there's stuff in there you're saying, well, that's, that's R. That, that's, that's like a double R. I, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty hard stuff. And what you say is, what happened to that promise? The psalmist talks about it. The writer of Hebrews wrestled with that very question when he read this psalm. He read this psalm about, God, God, you want to show forth your glory by using us to rule on this earth. But that one's not working real well, God. So like, when is that whole thing going to happen? For just a second, would you come with me to Hebrews chapter 2? Hebrews chapter 2. 
And, and I want to read through this passage with you. I, I want you to hear it afresh. Because God's intention to show forth His glory by having us rule was stopped by the fall. So how will that ever occur? And it's the very question that's asked in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer says this in verse 6. One has testified somewhere saying, What is man that thou rememberest him, or, or the son of man <clears throat> that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And you're reading that passage and you're saying like, When? Like, I think I missed something. And this is what the writer says. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not sub subject to him. In other words, it was supposed to be everything. But here's the problem. We do not yet see all things subjected to him. The writer of Hebrews says, I see the promise. I hear what the psalm says. I see what God did in Adam. But how will we ever get there? How will God ever take glory for his namesake by humanity actually ruling this earth in a way that's marked by true love and holiness and purity just the way it's supposed to be? How will we ever get there? Only by one person. Look at what verse 9 says of Hebrews chapter 2. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, I'm sorry, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. You know what he says? This glory and this honor of ruling that God wants for mankind, because when mankind does it, it ultimately shows off God, will only come through Jesus. And the only way Jesus can do it, Jesus would have to come and live with us be one of us, and suffer for one of us. One of the themes that runs through Hebrews chapter 2 is the theme of death. And the writer says whether people want to face, acknowledge it or not, people live in fear of death because death is coming. And what it says again and again is Jesus came to suffer and to taste death for every man. He could not do it from a distance. He could not stand up in heaven and say, it's done. Sin had to be paid for, and the only way to do it, and the only one that could do it, would be Christ becoming one of us, being living with us, going through the difficulties of humanity, crying with us, experiencing all the things we experience, but sin. And then saying, I will taste death in such a way that those that trust me will never have to face the ultimate consequences of death because I will face them for them. Isn't that amazing? And because of that, 
He's exalted to a position of glory so that he might ultimately lead us to a position of glory so that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a millennium at one point and later a new heaven and a new earth. And in that whole system, there will be the perfect ruling of Christ through us. And God alone will be shown off in all of his glory. So a promise made way back here for Adam could only be realized through Jesus Christ. Now, let me just read through, make a couple comments and then I'll be done. Let me just continue reading through, through Hebrews 2 here for you. And here's, here's three things I want you to see about Jesus. They come up again and again. Jesus comes to be like us so that he could effectively suffer for us with the result of compassionately changing us. That's how it develops. Jesus comes to be like us so as to effectively suffer for us with the result of compassionately changing us. Because if we're going to rule, he's got to do something in our lives, doesn't he? So let me just keep reading. He's got to be like us, suffers for us, ultimately will change us. Let me just pick up in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, which would be Jesus, and those who are sanctified, which would be those of us that trust Christ, and those who are sanctified, are all from one, and we, and we don't know what word to put here exactly, but I think it's probably good in my translation is, are all from one Father. And here's the point. God, the Father, said, I want you to go and live and be just like them so you can literally call them brothers. Right? For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he became one of us. And we might say sisters. Okay. Saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. And he's quoting a series of texts from the Old Testament to say that, you know what? Jesus chose to become just like us. Not sinful, but human. He was willing to go through that because he wanted to change us. And he wanted to change us so that ultimately we would fulfill his plan to glorify God. Do you see how that all flows? Then he says this. Look at verse, um, um, verse, verse, verse 14. Since then... The children share in flesh and blood. In other words, since then humans are, are, are human. He himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death. That is the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Or, 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 he gives help really to believers there. And here's the point. Jesus Christ became like us so that the thing that was keeping us from God, sin and death, would be totally turned on its head by his one act. And he was willing to taste that so that you and I would never have to face the penalty, the ultimate penalty of sin and death. Isn't that great, folks? He also says this 
in verses 17 and 18. This great God who has come to suffer for us, who wanted to become human so that he could suffer for us and save us and ultimately fulfill God's purposes. This same one, because he became human, can compassionately change you and help you. Look what he says in verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? Why did he have to be human like us? I'll tell you. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I don't know if they still say it like this, but I used to, used to, used to hear it this way. And maybe they've changed the definitions. But, but we used to tell guys in counseling that you can sympathize with anybody, but you can only empathize with people if you've been through the same problem as them. So... Um, I've, I've lost loved ones. I've lost a sister. I've lost a mother and so on that. So I can empathize with people who lose a sister, a sibling, or a parent. Um, I've never lost a child. And I, 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 you know, every parent's prayer is that we go before them, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. But it, when I deal with people who've lost their child, I can sympathize with them, but I can't empathize because I haven't been through that experience. And we should do everything we can. And God can use us. Jesus does not merely sympathize with you. He empathizes. Not because he ever sinned. But because he was human. You say, Lord, I get tired. He got tired. Lord, I've been opposed by people. He's been opposed. He's been hurt physically. A whole series of things, right? And ultimately, put on a cross. And this text is telling us, look, this Christ who walks with us is the one who now is our merciful high priest who compassionately wants to change us. So we can come to him and say, God, I'm scared. I'm hurt. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get over this or get over that. I don't know. Lord, Lord, help. And, and, and Jesus doesn't say, like, get over it, man. Jesus says, I know. And I actually know at a deeper level than you. Because you know what happens to Doug Finkbeiner when he's tempted? Often. Not always by his grace. I'm a stick. What happens when you take a stick and get to about this point? What happens with the stick? Stick. The snatch. You know, Doug Finkbeiner tempted in this area. Oh, I know I shouldn't do that, Lord. But oh, Lord, I'm just well, well. I snap. I give in. Jesus is like steel, a steel bar. And if I take a steel bar, you can take that steel bar and you can bend it, 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 and it never breaks. Jesus has felt temptation at a level that we don't because he never gave in. Do you see? And say, Lord, I'm a stick. I'm feeling this. Jesus, I know I did it all the way and never stopped. So, Doug, I can empathize with you, stick. I care for you. I know the loneliness. I know the pain. Don't give in. Don't give up. Stay the course. See, he doesn't just sympathize. 
He empathizes with us, folks. Do you see what I'm saying? And the writer of Hebrews says, look, I love that psalm. I love that psalm. But there ain't no way we're going to get there reading that psalm alone. It's just not going to happen. One must come. God must come. God must become us. Feel our pain. Struggle as humans struggle. And then taste the one thing that He doesn't want us to ever taste so that we can live with Him forever and fulfill the very purposes that God had for Adam from the beginning. Do you see? Oh Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your reputation on all the earth. When I look around at creation, I say, God, wow. When I see you use me as a weak person to accomplish your purposes, I say, God is great. And when I see you wanting to use us, knowing that that can only ever happen through Jesus, so that one day we will rule and reign with you in a perfect world so that all the glory goes back to you. I can only say, how magnificent is your name. Do you see, folks? Psalmist spoke truth, but didn't know the fullness of what he was saying. And the writer of Hebrews finishes the story. Let's uh, not worry about jumping into mud pits and showing off for whoever. Let's show off God. As we look around, see what he does through us, and see what he will ultimately do through Jesus Christ with us. Father.